Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. There's a whole swath of young kids out there that have never known life without COVID. Their formative years were spent masking and social distancing, and the long-term effects remain unknown. Studies and observations show that some kids are behind in speech, motor, and social development. There's optimism in the resilience of young kids to adapt now that things are a little more back to normal, and in some of the positive effects like spending more time with family. For more on how the pandemic has affected the country's youngest children, we'll speak to Anna North, senior correspondent at Vox. So definitely researchers agree, you know, researchers and people who work with children all agree that the first three, the first five years are just so, so important for um, your brain development, for your cognitive development, your development as a person. These are really crucial times when you're sort of forming a lot of your skills and a lot of who you are. And so a lot of folks were concerned, what's it going to be like for kids who during this time have been much more isolated than they ordinarily would be, and they weren't able to do a lot of things that people might have taken for granted. I mean, as a parent, I think about just like how long it was when my kid didn't go to the grocery store, you know, and like you think of that as a small thing, but there's just dozens of things like that. So what does that mean? Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, we don't have standardized test scores for this group, so we can't look to that. But we've seen researchers do other sorts of tests of development that you can do on babies and young children. And some of them have found some concerning things spoke to one researcher who had seen when she and her team looked at babies who were born during the pandemic versus babies who'd been born before, you know, found some differences in terms of motor skills, found some differences in terms of sort of personal social skills. So, you know, there was some sense that just being a baby born at this time, and to be clear, this wasn't like babies whose mothers had necessarily gotten COVID while they were pregnant. It was just based on the time that they were born. But it did have some impact. You know, and then I talked also just kind of qualitatively to teachers and administrators at the school that I visited um, and to parents. And they, they definitely notice, you know, they notice changes, especially a teacher who works with four and five-year-olds, saw a lot of speech delays. She was concerned also just about 
there's a lot of thinking around just how kids learn and how they learn in a social environment and how they learn to be part of a society and how important that can be in this sort of intangible way for all the other types of learning. And these are kids who kind of like weren't part of a society for a little while or they were part of a really tiny society. So, you know, I think educators do have concerns about this. I mean, to to that point, right, you're talking about the smaller things, the visits to the grocery store. Uh, You know, a lot lot of the kids, uh, uh, teachers you spoke to when they're talking to the kids are saying, well, have you been to the beach? Have you been to the library? And there's a lot of no in these kids' lives. And to that point, right, the, the attitudes and the interactions that people had during the pandemic were totally different. Yeah, have to practice the social distancing, the mask wearing. You know, there wasn't a very open thing. It was a very much like if you went out in the public, you're doing what you got to do. You're getting back inside because you're, you're scared, right? You're scared of getting sick and kids are sponges. They're picking those little nuances up. So, you know, how does that affect them as they do go back into school in person? And there's so many questions, right? That's kind of one of the, the difficult things. As you mentioned, there's no standardized test for any of this stuff. It's all very much a lot of questions and how things will bear out. Now, some of the people did say, some of the experts said, it's not all bad. This was another point where kids were able to spend a lot more time with family. You know, obviously, if the, the home situation was, was good, but, you know, it strengthens those bonds. So, I mean, there are some positives that could have come out of this as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I spoke to a, a neuroscientist named uh, Mariah Thomason, and I thought she was really illuminating in terms of talking about, you know, yes, we have concerns. Yes, kids, like really across the age spectrum, need support right now. But at the same time, we shouldn't assume that this was just like completely like these are just completely lost years for children. And it's true that pretty much every time you speak to a family, and, you know, I've done this a lot for my work, you know, you ask like, well, I know this is a terrible time. We never would have wished for this pandemic to happen, but is there any silver lining? Almost everyone will say, I spent more time with my kids. We spent more time together as a family. And so, you know, and, and there are real cognitive benefits to that. It's not just like nice, you know, although it can, it can be nice. So I think it's important to see like, you know, this is a generation of kids that has had unique challenges, but they've also had some unique benefits. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you you made mention in the article too. You know, you don't want to qual- uh, just classify these kids as some type of lost generation and dismiss them, right? They're going to need help. They're going to need services. A lot of people are pointing to counseling, speech therapy, other support. And when we look at those things, right, they often cost money. A lot of times schools don't have the adequate resources to provide that as well. So um, when we're looking at uh, our, uh, you know, boys uh, get affected by this a little bit more sometimes and then low income families again. So those are other things that we need to watch out for, for these younger kids that have grown up through the pandemic like that. Yeah, everybody I spoke to really underlined, um, you know, the importance of looking at inequality here. And I think for parents who have a little bit of financial means and who have the time, they're able to sort of see like, okay, you know, where is my kid struggling? How can I maybe get them therapy? How can I, you know, potentially they have the financial means to be able to pay for that out of pocket or they have the health insurance to pay for it. But lower income families, they don't always have they don't always have that in a lot of cases you know, the services that their kids get come through the school. And so there's a real need for funding those services. And those services were underfunded before the pandemic started. Schools were underfunded before the pandemic started. And those problems have really gotten worse because a lot of speech therapy, things like this, just weren't happening during lockdown. So everybody's playing catch up. There's more demand than ever. You know, everybody really talks about just this incredible increased need, and especially for kids who don't have a lot of financial resources in their family. Uh, still, a lot of the experts, as we've been talking about, say 
they don't think these will be lifelong problems. Kids are so resilient. And by and large, right, most almost all schools now are in person again. So there is that time to rebuild all that. Uh, I know you followed a lot of kids and went to a lot of different schools and, and, and kind of seen what was going on, spoke to a lot of parents and teachers, uh, just observing all that. Uh, how did you see the kids? How did you see the youngest of them and the way they interact now? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, at the at the preschool that I visited, I was struck, you know, it's interesting that people, researchers have had these concerns and teachers have had these concerns because there also was the sense when I was in that preschool classroom that things are pretty normal. You know, these are, were kids who were interacting with each other. They were kids who were playing and having fun. They were kids who were like squabbling and arguing the way kids squabble and argue and like making up the way kids make up. So it's not I don't want to overstate any of this and say, you know, kids don't know how to be kids anymore or they don't know how to play together anymore because that's not true. And I think yeah. it's wonderful to see, you know, what educators are doing with kids and how they're sort of helping them get back into the world. I think the message of resiliency is really important. And, you know, if anything, I think what we should take from this is, yes, these youngest kids might need some help in terms of making up for things that they've lost. But that help is really valuable and they can get back on track and they can really bounce back from this. Anna North, senior correspondent at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second-grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally for this week, we'll tell you about the anti-cult activism of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She focused on this work after a deprogramming she went through after she fell in with a group she considered a cult. She was involved with an organization called LifeSpring, which advertised training seminars that could help unlock hidden potential. The group was accused of breaking participants down mentally, and one man reportedly had a psychotic break. 
For more on how Thomas got out and the controversial world of anti-cult activism, we'll speak to Alex Seitz-Wald, senior politics reporter at NBC News. This is a a wild story and definitely a a rabbit hole that my colleague Alan Smith and I fell down. And it came up because Thomas has been shown to be sort of bought into what appears to be some, you know, QAnon type stuff, which has also been called uh, a cult. So basically, uh, in the 80s, Jenny Thomas was a lawyer. She was just moved to Washington, and she got involved with this group called LifeSpring that was a sort of new age self-help group. They would put people through these very intense trainings, kind of psychologically break them down with the goal that you could supposedly unlock superhuman potential in you. And after you did the first training, they would, of course, say, well, you got to come back and do the second one, the third one, you know, like Scientology or Nexium or any of these groups. And eventually some people became so involved, they essentially started working for their group and it became kind of their whole life. And Jenny Thomas was one of those people. She, there was a, there was a uh, Washington Post expose in 1987 that she spoke to the reporter. She was a lobbyist for the Chamber of Commerce at the time. And she said she became so intellectually involved with the group that it was poisoning her relationships with her friends or coworkers or family because they didn't recognize her and she was trying to sell them these trainings. So she contacted a, a deprogrammer that was a practice has fallen out of favor, but the idea was that people in cults were brainwashed and they needed to be essentially unbrainwashed to get out. It was a long process. She had to move across the country at one point because she was getting inundated by calls from other members of this group trying to bring her back into the fold. And through this experience, she became an anti-cult activist. She organized trainings on Capitol Hill. She spoke out publicly. She was a, you know, a politically connected lawyer. So she used those skills and, and those connections to help advance the anti-cult agenda, which at the time had its own controversy. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm, these uh, cults and th- you know organizations like this are always so fascinating to me. And you mentioned it, Nexium is one of those ones that a lot of people might uh, be more familiar with a-, a lot more recently because it was in the news. But, you know, some of these experts call these things large group awareness trainings. And as you mentioned, it's kind of in the guise of self-help and, uh, you know, unlocking potential and whatnot. Tell us a little bit more about what happened with LifeSpring because things, once they start hitting the public, things start going wrong. I guess there were several trainees that died in there, yeah. there was settlements, there was lawsuits, and that's what kind of really caused the the downfall of at least that organization. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's there's been a whole bunch of, of what experts call these large group awareness trainings, and they're all kind of some variation on the same idea. Uh, there was also, you might remember, the, the sweat lodge guru, where I think uh, three people died in Arizona back in like 2009. And all of them do some version of putting people through very intense experiences. They might have you walk on hot coals, or Jenny Thomas said that in the LifeSpring group, they would have the entire group stripped down to their underwear, and then everybody would take turns pointing at and you know shaming one person at a time. Basically, whatever they could do to really break you down. Uh, there was a, a, two psychologists who went in and undercover did one of these trainings, and they witnessed a guy have a psychotic break in front of everyone. Instead of helping him, the organizers just berated him and said that it was his fault that he was uh, having this psychotic break. Uh, you mentioned a couple of people died. These weren't cases where you know there was violence, but it, the, the most famous case, there was a woman who had an asthma attack and they would not let her go to her car and get her inhaler because they said that she could overcome the asthma attack if she just you know worked harder. She didn't and she died. They, they prevented her from seeking help. They had to settle for four hundred fifty thousand dollars 
with the family. So most of these groups end up going defunct through either lawsuits or sometimes criminal action like with Nexium. And they can create a culture where the leaders of these groups can get really rich and powerful and sometimes do some really gross or, or bad things with the people that they have under their control. Let's talk a little bit about the other side, because you mentioned it, the deprogrammer. So Ginny Thomas herself said she saw a deprogrammer through the help of that, this, what it was able to help her get out of all of this stuff. But, you know, that's not without its own controversy. A lot of these deprogrammers, or at least the way it was working early on in kind of this, uh, you know, as these things started taking hold, they were accused of kidnapping people, basically, because it's hard to get somebody out of an organization. So I guess they would take a person away, hide them away, you know, deprive them of food and water, even anything to kind of like make, make something click in their head to get them out of whatever they'd been practicing already for so long. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this was a thing that I have to say I was completely unaware of. I was just fascinated as we were, you know, researching and exploring this story. So keep in mind, this is after the Jonestown massacre in 79 when you know a u.s congressman went down to investigate what was happening at this compound of a, a u.s-based cult everybody died there was a str- they committed suicide they killed the congressman this is where the term drink the kool-aid comes from there was a string of these kind of mass suicides so there was this big national panic that was justified in getting very concerned about these cults and it and to a lot of parents it seemed like they're their kids would just disappear into these organizations never to be heard from again. So the anti-cult movement rose up in its place, but the problem was it was these self-trained, self-appointed people, and there was no real oversight or authority watching this. And because they had kind of the moral authority on their side, they got away with a lot of stuff that in hindsight looks really bad. They would have parents and, and you know there's there was a range of people so the person that jenny thomas worked with we've no he's he's passed away we've no evidence that he engaged in any of this he seemed to just be more of kind of a counselor like you would do a, a drug intervention but a lot of these people including the people who are running this group that jenny thomas got involved with would do these active deprogrammings they call them involuntaries because they would literally uh, they call it snatch but the the aclu and many other people call it kidnapping they would literally kidnap people at the behest of their parents and take them away. And the belief was because they were brainwashed, they had to snap out of it. And you had to, you know, you can picture Clockwork Orange where they hold your eyes open. (laughs) They had to do whatever it took to get you out of this. And the case that kind of ended this was a man who, who got abducted outside of his mother's house, was held at a remote beach house for five days with very little food and water. They wouldn't let him sleep. I mean, kind of like the enhanced interrogation tactics we use. Uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And then he finally feigned acceptance. He said, you're right, you're right. You know, I've, I've come out of it. They took him to dinner to celebrate. And then he went to the bathroom and actually ran away to the police and ended up suing. It became this huge thing, a ton of media attention. And that kind of ended the practice of deprogramming. But when Ginny Thomas was involved, this was a very common practice. Uh, one survey, 40% of cult members were abducted and they wrestled with this, that we have video that we obtained of the, the head of the group that she was involved with, uh, with Jenny Thomas on the stage there saying, you know, 
are we doing the right thing? It, it's tough to know, but we think we're on the right side. Yeah, I mean, and it's even changed the industry since then. Right now, they position themselves kind of as exit counselors, something more familiar, kind of like a drug or alcohol intervention. You know, everything's changed when a bunch of lawsuits start popping up. And, and then so now, you know, connecting the dots to some of this QAnon stuff, that's, you know, some of why the the curiosity of some of the actions that Ginny Thomas was taking, you know, around the time of the election and all that, and some of the stuff she was texting to lawmakers, all that stuff, coming out of the talking points of a lot of the QAnon stuff that we're seeing. And as you mentioned in the article, you know, uh, some people have referred to it as a cult. You know, who knows if it is technically one. A lot of this stuff just takes place on online message boards. But uh, again, uh, you know, some people question how she, uh, Ginny Thomas, might have been sucked into some of these things. It was one person put it to me, I can't believe she fell for it again. That was a lawyer who specialized in suing cults on behalf of ex-cult members, and he worked with Thomas. He knew her. He said she was a smart person. She, he was shocked that, that she did this. But other people that we spoke with who, who knew her said, well, there is a well-known thing in psychology that, you know, if you fall victim to one of these groups, if you're, if you're prone to believing in one of these things, you're prone to believing in others. The best indicator of if somebody is prone to conspiracy theories is if they already believe in another conspiracy theory. And she spoke openly in one of these panels that uh, we obtained video of, of in 1987. Uh, it was a panel of this anti-cult group. She spoke openly about how she had to do some introspection and think internally about what made her vulnerable to this group, what made her want to join it, and if those parts of her personality are still there. Her pastor growing up in, in Omaha, she came from a, a prominent family in Omaha, he said that, that she had this, he used the word naivety about her uh, and this generosity where she would she couldn't pass a homeless person on the street without trying to help them. So the commonality to connect the dots, you know, whether you want to believe QAnon is a cult or not, I think that the common connection here is that both of these groups or entities are offering an alternate reality that is really appealing. It's really appealing that you can go to these trainings right. in the case of LifeSpring and you can fix everything in your life. You can be a better worker, a better, a better husband or wife or father. You can just everything that you think is wrong with you, you can fix. And if you're a deeply conservative person, it's really appealing to believe that, no, your guy actually won the election. And not only that, but there is this whole secret apparatus that is out there that is, is about to spring into action. Everything's going to work out in the end. Don't worry. Because those, those were the text messages that she was sending was talking about how there's this, this big military Trumpian operation that's going to put everything right. So in both cases, it's buying into a more attractive reality that is unfortunately uh, for them, not the yeah. actual reality. Totally. It's a fascinating story. There's a lot of great details. So I suggest everybody get out and read it. Alex Seitzwald, senior politics reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes 
their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts